today we're going to see out of the book of Ruth, all right, so you can go ahead and try to find that in your Bible, the book of Ruth. Uh, we're going to see today how God uses a little girl, a little girl from nowhere to change the entire world. And a spoiler alert real quick is uh, the, the young girl we're going to see in the story today is like the great, 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 great grandmom of the Lord Jesus. That's, that's like the backdrop of the whole story, but kind of the, the front and center in, the chap, in chapter one is the question that you saw raised in the video. It's what do I do when God doesn't act like I expect him to act? What do I do when God doesn't answer what I've cried out to him to answer? Uh, how do I act? What do I do when the uh, son does not return home? When the doctor's report is bad? What do I do when the marriage dissolves, even though my whole connect group has prayed that, you know what, he would come to his senses and come back? What do I do when, from our perspective, God doesn't come through? Now, to some degrees, this is like the big theological, philosophical question out there. I mean, people are like, okay, how can an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God allow suffering? And this has destroyed many people's faith, not being able to answer and wrestle with that question in a way that satisfies their soul. Uh, Ricky Gervais, he said this, and by the way, he grew up and he grew up going to church and praying and reading the Bible and all that kind of stuff, but somebody asked him if he ever prays, and he said no. He said, why would I ask God to help me find my keys if he stood and did nothing during the Holocaust? I told you before about the whole backstory of Ted Turner and how he had great tragedy early in his life. And finally, he just threw up his hand. He's like, God, if you're going to act that way, I don't want anything to do with you. But it's not just out there. It's not just philosophical. It's extremely practical. It's practical for you as a believer. Again, what happens? What happens when your son is not healed? What happens when the doctor's appointment is bad? What happens when you don't get the job? What happens when your company goes bankrupt even though you've worked your tail off and it still goes bottom up? So in other words, if God is all powerful and all loving, how do you explain this? Uh, C.S. Lewis, who's written a ton of good stuff, and you might have read some of his, here's what he said to sort of verbalize what oftentimes we think. He lost his wife to a painful bout with cancer, and he wrote this, quote, I can't understand why God is always there when things are going well, telling you what he expects of you, but go to him when your need is desperate and all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting from the inside. Now listen, that doesn't make many of the C.S. Lewis quotes. And C.S. Lewis, who wrote that as a believer, he did recover from that. But a lot of people don't recover from that. It either develops your faith or it destroys your faith. And so the reason it's so practical is, as it's been said oftentimes, when it comes to you, no matter where you are, no matter where you're watching from, you either, you either in the midst of it right now, something is going on and it is difficult right now. There is a trial, there is a difficulty, there is pain right now that you're going through. The Bible's got great news. Listen, God is not walking away from you. He is walking towards you. He is rolling up his sleeves and coming towards you. The Bible says, listen, he is near to the broken heart. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
Other people, you are uh, just coming out of it as well. You know what? You're coming out of a very difficult season. You're coming out of a very difficult time. You're like, you know, you're kind of wounded still, but you know what? You're healing up. And if you're not a number one or number two, then number three is then you are one hour closer to it. You don't get to audit the class of pain and suffering in this world. No matter what some preacher told you, you don't get to audit out of this class. And yet the Bible says, you know what? Uh, not only is he near to those who are brokenhearted, he says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. The Bible says, I would have despaired if I did not believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So uh, what do we need to learn on the front end of this? If you're coming out of it or if you're uh, near it, what do we need to learn on the front end? Because it's very hard, very hard when you're in the midst of it to wrap yourself around what does God say about pain and suffering. It's like trying to learn how to operate a parachute when the plane is going down. Much, much better to figure out on the front end, all right, how does this operate? What do I need to know on the front end? And so I'm gonna walk you through a story. And usually when we go through shorter texts, we're like, read a verse, say some stuff about it, read a verse, say some stuff about it. We're gonna kind of spend our time going through for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, we're gonna go through a narrative. And then after that narrative, we're gonna see drawn from that a couple of principles that, okay, how do I progress through my pain right now? So Ruth chapter one, starting in verse one, here's what it says. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. So with that verse staying up there, let me just tell you what that is. In the days when the judges ruled, the book of Judges is the book immediately preceding it. The book of Judges is probably the most depressing book in the Bible because there is a cycle that is repeated over and over and over again. The phrase that is repeated over and again is like they did what was right in their own eyes. And so it was a very dark, terrible time in the nation of Israel because the cycle was basically this. They would, they would be blessed by God and then they would forget God and they would rebel against God. God would bring discipline often in the form of an enemy. They would cry out to God. God would give them deliverance, usually through a judge, which is where you get the book of. And then as they were delivered, they would go back, they would rejoice, but they would forget God and do the whole cycle all over again. It's not a good time. It's not a happy time. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem, and the irony is uh, the Bethlehem is a city that actually means city of bread. In this city of bread, this promised land that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey was under the divine chastisement of Almighty God. And so what you have is you have people panicking. What do I do? What do I do? It says, a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife, and his two sons. Now, the, the guy you're going to see here is a Jewish man named Elimelech, and ironically, his name means God is king, but because the economy was suffering and because he wouldn't figure it out, he kind of panicked, and he went and did exactly what God said not to do. God had told his people over and over again, do not go to Moab, don't go to Moab. He says it in Deuteronomy, he says it in Leviticus. He's like, don't go to Moab, don't go to Moab. Why? Because there's no temple there, there's no worship there, there's no fellowship there. There is a deep, dark, pagan people there. They worshiped false gods, and they knew that it would impact God's people. He says, don't go there, but he says, you know what, we're going to go anyway. So verse 2, verse 2 says, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife is Naomi. 
And the names of his two sons are Malon, and he actually pronounced it, I think, Kilion. I'm just going to say Chilion because it sounds cooler, but it sounds like Klingon names. But and you're like, hey, I, that's a great name for my son. Don't, don't name your son that, all right? Uh, parents, don't do that. The name, the name uh, Malon means sick, and uh, Chilion means uh, dying, all right? So you name your sons that, it's like naming them COVID and pneumonia, all right? So bad choice of names, but that's, that's what was going on. So verse 3. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So, okay, right off the bat, tragedy has hit this woman. She's in a foreign land. Her husband has died. There is huge pain. A lot of question marks are coming up. But even the next verse says this. The sons, they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, all right, not Oprah, Orpha. And the name of the other was Ruth. Ruth is the, obviously the person in this story to some degree is going to revolve around. And they lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, here's what happens. The husband dies and then the two sons die. We don't know how. And so Naomi finds herself in a foreign land with no husband, uh, no sons, which is painful no matter what culture, no matter what century you live in. But in this one, it was particularly painful because back then in that patriarchal society, Naomi was all of a sudden helpless and hopeless and with no protection, nobody to go to at all. And Naomi obviously is like, why is this happening to me? I mean, that is the question. Why is this happening to me? You ask that question. Why is this happening? My connect group prayed that she would not divorce me, and she divorced me. I worked hard, and I still went bankrupt. I took care of myself, and the doctors still say it's cancer. And what's happening is, is that friction of like, you know what? If I was in charge, I wouldn't do things this way. If I were in charge, I wouldn't let bad things happen to good people. And so when we think, well, I'm in charge, and a lot of that, you know, I wouldn't. If I was in charge, I would probably think, you know what, I'd do things differently. I wouldn't give uh, good Christian girls, you know, uh, tumors. I wouldn't do that. wouldn't give them cancer, all right? I'd give the terrorists the cancer. I'd give the terrorists the tumors. I mean, how awesome would that be to, like, be God for a day, and a terrorist thinks some terroristic thought, and that thought turns into a tumor. You're like, that's the way I would do it. And we have to understand a little bit of theology behind suffering before we go on any further uh, in the story. Now, I'm going to say some things that I wouldn't ever say if you were in the midst of it. This is not for you to share at a funeral service. This is not for you to go to a hospital bed of a sick and dying person and lay some of this on them. But for you as a Christ follower, you got to know, okay, what's the Bible actually say about uh, suffering? How do I put a framework around this? So let me give you three thoughts that just sort of form a triangle, if you will. All right, number one is that we live in a broken world. God created a world that was perfect and good. We rebelled against God, and we all participated in that. That brought a curse. God's world doesn't work right, from weather systems to cells in our body. And sometimes people are like, you know what? We don't deserve that. We don't deserve that. As a matter of fact, most of the objections raised against God about suffering are built on the assumption that we as the human race deserve good things, that we, we are owed good things, and that God is 
unjust for not giving us those good things. And the Bible actually takes an opposite tack. It actually says, because of our rebellion against a holy and righteous God, all we really deserve is death. And all the good stuff that we do have from ribeyes to cars to whatever, that's just called grace. And so we live in a, we live in a broken world. And Jesus never, Jesus never said otherwise. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. And that includes particular suffering, that includes mysterious suffering, that includes also what we just call Christian suffering. First Peter talks about Christian suffering a whole bunch. Christian suffering is suffering that you would have not gotten if you weren't a Christ follower, but because you are, they said, you know what? Jesus said, listen, a, a student is not above his master. If they call me the devil, they're not gonna throw you a birthday party. And so you and I have to understand that. That is the I mean, if you are shocked at the fact that you are suffering at all, and it's a surprise to you, that is because you've kind of bought into the Western world of self-help Jesus who came to build your self-esteem and to help you realize your human potential by Friday. That's not the Jesus that you see in the Bible. Jesus was the most righteous person, and he suffered unbelievably. And so Jesus suffered, the apostles suffered. All the great men and women down through history that named the name of Jesus, they suffered. And so that is not a surprise that is part and parcel of being a Christian. So number one, uh, the world is broken. Number two, sometimes our suffering is just consequences. It's just consequences. It's, it's the fact that I do something to myself. Uh, you are broke. I'm broke because I'm greedy. I'm divorced because I'm unfaithful. All right, now that's, that's not because God is put, putting you through a trial. It's because that's a consequence. That's something that you brought on. And something. And by the way, that's also why you need a church. A church to say, listen, don't go down that road. That's a dumb road. You go down that road, you won't like where that road ends. But if it is a consequence, by the way, God is not gonna hide that from you, all right? God's not putting on those poker glasses so that you can't read his hand and say, you know what, what is this for? If it's a consequence over sin, and the reason it's important is if it's a consequence, you repent over it. If it's a trial, then you just say, God, let me have some wisdom. But listen, just like if you're a parent and you have little kids, you don't walk into the room and spank them and then go, uh, they go, hey, why, why am I getting spanked? Well, I'm, you got to guess. No, God will tell you very clearly, hey, this is what this is for, and I want you to repent, and I want you to run back to me. Or uh, a third truth you need to do is this. Um, is that God uses suffering, God uses suffering redemptively for God's glory, for your good, and for other people's good. God will use that redemptively. You're like, how's he gonna do that? Well, look at the story. Story goes on, it says this. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So here it is, something somewhere inside of Naomi's like, I gotta return to God, I gotta return to God's people, I gotta return to God's land. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. You're like, what's going on? Well, a couple of things. One of them is that Naomi's showing great kindness toward her daughters-in-law. 
This seems pretty obvious that this is not the first time that she's talked to her daughters-in-law about the covenant keeping God. This is not some general God talk or the man upstairs or any of that kind of generic God. She's Look in your Bible. It says L-O-R-D in all caps, all right? What that means, that's the covenant name for God. She's like, you know what? God was kind to me. God was good to me. She might or might not understand all the different prophecies about, you know, that God that she's talking about is the Lord Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But even with that, what she's doing is she's talking to them in a kind fashion about the covenant-keeping God. Next few verses, she basically urges her daughters-in-law to return to Moab because she's got nothing to offer them. She's lost everything. And Orpha chooses to go back home. We never hear from her again. But skip down to verse 15, and some of you all have seen this in weddings, and then we're going to draw a couple of principles. Here's what it says. And she said, see, this is Naomi, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And okay, this is Naomi talking to Ruth, saying, go do what Orpha did. Go back. You're a Moabite woman. Go back to your people, all right? You come with me to Israel, you're probably going to have a difficult time as well. But check out what goes on in 16 and 17. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, may Jehovah God, may the covenant-keeping God that you have told me about, may the Lord do to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. All right, so what do we do with this? How do we see in an Old Testament narrative thousands and thousands of years ago about what you're going through right now in the hurt and the trial and the pain and the confusion that you have? What do we, what do we draw from that? I want you to jot down a couple of principles. Number one, and that's very, very important to understand, and that is this, is that God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. Listen, God is always good. God always has a promise, and God always has a purpose. And the part you have to understand is sometimes you get to see what that purpose is in this life. Sometimes you do. I mean, all of us have seen that where we look back and maybe it's in our own life or somebody else's life and it's like the alcoholic, he gets in a car wreck, but he survives it and it's just like his wake-up call, okay? Uh, the husband almost loses his wife and it's a wake-up call and all of a sudden he starts to become a good husband. And it's really cool when you get to see, when you get to see, all right, this pain this pain actually now was for a purpose, and I can see that purpose. Augustine, who was a bishop in like North Africa years and years and years ago, he said right now it's like we are, we are looking at a stained glass window from like right, just like an inch away. And from that close, all it looks like is a bunch of jagged edges and brokenness. But if you and I will step back from that, it looks beautiful. That's what oftentimes goes on, or to put it in a... Uh, like a karate kid deal. If you, if you go back and if you're a kid of the 80s and the karate kid and Mr. Miyagi and Daniel, you kind of saw that. I mean, Daniel used to get beat up in school and then he goes to Mr. Miyagi, hey, teach me how to defend myself. And Mr. Miyagi makes him do some stuff that does not make sense. It's all right, okay. paint the fence, paint the fence, all right? Wax the car, wax the car. He's like, this is stupid. It makes no sense, all right? This is worthless, almost wanted to quit. Only to find out, you know what, he was, not, he was teaching him about defensive moves and how to defend himself. And that's awesome when you get to see that. 
It really is. You're like, I look back and I see that. And here, I mean, you can see some things that God used in Naomi's pain. But first and foremost is her daughter-in-law's conversion. This is Ruth's conversion moment. Ruth goes from being a spectator, watching what God was doing in Naomi's life to being a recipient of Naomi's God. She's like, you know what? I watched you, Naomi, how you went through this, and then I want your God to be my God. And so don't miss this. Somehow, some way, the tool that God used was Naomi's walk through pain that God used, that she suffered, but she suffered well. Here's what we think, and here's what's kind of been pushed down our throat in some church growth models, and it's been this. It's like the world is going to be like super impressed when Christians are successful. When they get Cadillacs and cash, that is what's going to make them want to become a Christian. And not only is that not true, but if that's all that they see and all they want is cash and Cadillacs, then they're not going after Jesus. They just want the cash and Cadillacs, that, which, by the way, is called idolatry. When you looked at Naomi's life, she's like, you know what? I don't see a perfect person, but I see an authentic person. Because there's kind of two extremes. Two extremes with Christians in pain, and Naomi didn't fall into either one of them. Some Christians, when, it, when the bottom really falls out, man, they're just like, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. Never going to be the same. Never going to get over this. It's absolutely hopeless. All is lost. It's impossible. And what do we talk about all the time? Listen, if the tomb is empty, nothing is impossible. So if you're a Christian, like, it's impossible. Man, go back and just realize, listen, if God raised Jesus from the dead, he can certainly resurrect your marriage. He can certainly bring back your prodigal. But the other extreme almost is, I would say, even more insidious, is that whole idea of, I don't know how to say it any better than just, it's just fake. It's just fake. It's just fake Christianity. You go through a difficult time. The whole world is falling apart. Somebody asks you, how you doing? You're like, hey, I'm blessed and highly favored, favored, brother. How about you? It's like, man, it doesn't look like you're blessed and highly favored. It looks like your world's falling apart. That's what it looks like. Now, granted, Naomi in this story, she does vacillate some. I mean, she does. If you read all the text and the whole thing, she struggles a lot with it. But listen, Christians are not Stoics. Christians are not Stoics. Christians are not people who have no emotion at all. Now we eventually want to bring the emotions we have to the cross and let God change those emotions, and it won't happen overnight, but it will over time. But Christians aren't Stoics. Christians grieve. Christians get confused. But with Naomi, with all of her struggles, with all of her vacillation, what she is is she is, she is authentic. She is authentic because sometimes bottom line is you don't get to see, you don't get to see some of what God is doing. I mean, only a sovereign God could take the disobedience of Elimelech, the pain and suffering that Naomi went through, and save mankind to the great, 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 great grandmom of Jesus. But God always has a purpose, and that purpose primarily, again, it's the glory of God. He'll use it redemptively in your life, but the freedom of being able to say, my trial, my blessing, my difficulty, and my victory, it is for the glory of God. And if it's pain, God, would you use this in people's lives for the glory of God? You're like, how could he do that? I mean, think about it. God took the worst atrocity in human history, the murder of his son, and used it for the glory of God and for the good of mankind. So he certainly can you. And when you think about it, when you look at the, uh, sometimes people say, don't ask why, don't ask why. You know, that's not even biblical. Just read the Psalms. Read Psalm 22. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not wrong to ask why. Jesus asked why. He quotes Psalm 22 while he's on the cross dying for the sin debt of the world. So just you got to understand, God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. But the second thing, what's God going to do? God's going to pour grace through your life through this. That God uses community to help. Man, sister, please hear me on this. God uses community as a means of putting grace into your life during the midst of a difficult time. Did you see verse 16? She didn't know she was modeling him. She's like, don't urge me to leave you. I'm not giving up on you. I don't want to leave. I mean, that is community. And one of God's promises in pain is you don't have to go through the pain alone. One of the biggest things that almost everybody has measured during COVID and the pandemic is the impact on people because of isolation. I mean, even those of us who are like, Died in the wool, introverts were like, I want to see people. I want to rub shoulders. I want to get in a crowded room. I can't wait for that to happen again. Why? Because we were not made for isolation. We were not made for that. And again, they've measured it from emotional challenges to physical challenges to spiritual challenges over and over and over. And what's interesting is what unbelievers and what people without Jesus oftentimes see Sometimes believers don't actually practice. Sometimes a secular world can measure it and say, you know what, you need community. And yet some people, it's like, you know what, I'm a Christ follower. They just don't actually think it's the case for them. And loved one, can I just tell you that other people recognize it. The question is, have you recognized it? Have you recognized your need for community? Have you recognized the fact that what God wants to do is pour grace into your life in your pain through community. Again, everybody recognizes, Hollywood recognizes it. I mean, almost every, I, mean, I, like, I like war movies, but almost every war movie, I mean, Lone Survivor, Lone Survivor, but he wasn't alone initially. He had a bunch of other guys with him. He made it, he survived because of what they did. I mean, Black Hawk Down, Black Hawk Down. True story of what went on in Mogadishu. That part at the end where that helicopter, the guy got captured, a guy named Mike Durant, the helicopter went over and over and over and over the city on intercoms like, Mike Durant, we will not leave you alone. We will not leave you alone. We will not leave you behind. Question, Christian, you got anybody in your life that would say that same sentiment? You got anybody in your life when all hell breaks loose in your life, whether it be self-inflicted, or whether it be just something going on that you can't put your finger on. You got anybody in your life that says, you know what? I won't leave you behind. Ben, I won't leave you behind. Mary, we won't leave you behind. I mean, even like sports, the same thing. Remember the Titans. What do you have? You got people from different backgrounds, different colors, different races, different income, all that stuff. And it's like strong side, no, weak side, strong side, weak side. And they came together and they got victory. I mean, Animal Kingdom. If you ever watch Discovery Channel, I mean, I love watch. It's probably my favorite channel. I love watch. I like, I like the wildebeest trying to cross over with the crocodiles. But man, those lions. Who do the lions always go after? When those lions are in the grass, they're always going after that little impala that's like left behind. Just kind of, he kind of goes away from the herd, gets careless, falls out of rhythm, falls out of step. <laughs> the lions, they nail him. And the Bible says, you know what? You have an enemy, the roaring lion who prowls around seeking whom he may devour. 
Let me just be as blunt as I can. I've been doing this pastor deal since I was 20 years old. Since I was 20 years old, that's a lot of years. And I can tell you that Christians that have a pattern of victory, a pattern of joy, they have biblical community. They have biblical relationships. And if I can lovingly, pastorally say, some of you are just praying to God, God, would you please give me guidance for this decision? God, would you please pour some life into our marriage? And you're mad because it doesn't seem that God is doing that. And the whole time, it's like, he's like, get into community. Just sit there and go, God, pour into our marriage. Give us guidance. And not getting into community, it's like saying, God, I'm thirsty. And he's got a water fountain right beside you that you won't drink from. And so community, part of God's grace to you is uh, community. People to learn from, good and bad examples to encourage you to laugh with, to cry with. And some of you actually, we think it's like the whip topping on top of the Christian life and you don't realize it's essential. When I say whip topping, what comes to mind at my house, my house, we, uh, my wife cooks great, but she also cooks really clean and low carb and keto and all that kind of stuff. So, man, those meals are like planned out like clockwork. It's like these are, you know, just like four carbs in this and nine carbs in this or no carbs in this. I mean, it's like, listen, I'm a carbalicious guy, but one of the things that she does, because I married a woman of God, is she, she knows that, like, I need a little bit. So what she does is she gives, uh, it's going to sound cheesy, but I get a little pudding like you used to get when you take it to school in your little brown paper sack. I get this little chocolate pudding. Sometime I'll go for a, you know, a, a trifecta and have three of them, but I'll, I'll get this little pudding. But one of the greatest sounds in our house is when she's like, sprays that whipped topping. I say, shh, pop a couple of cherries on there. It's like, glory to God, I'm free. This is awesome. But nobody would confuse that with the main course. You gotta understand, the way that God wants to pour grace into your life in pain the way God wants to develop you as a Christian. You've got some tools, obviously himself, all right, his presence. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Again, God, God saves those who are crushed in spirit. He moves toward the brokenhearted. So it's his presence. Uh, sometimes it's just the word. You get in the word and God speaks to you. That's another one. But one of the main ways God develops is, is his people. It's people, not perfect people. Jacked up people, messed up people who have been saved by the grace of God. I got a couple of texts this week from people who were at church last week for the first time. I don't know if they got their vaccine or whatever. But they're like, man, we were watching online and it's awesome, but it's not like being here and rubbing shoulders. So let me uh, just do two quick things. Some of you are like, you know what? I, 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 I don't need, I don't need. I don't, I don't need, I just kind of like doing my own thing with Jesus. When are you ever gonna get tired of your lack of vitality, your lack of impact? The way God teaches you to love people is by putting you around some people that are easy to love and people that are hard to love. If you gave up on church or if you gave up on community, if you gave up on small, it's like, I love Jesus and I don't like the church. It's not, you're either arrogant or you're ignorant, one of the two. You're either arrogant thinking you're the only person that doesn't need community or you're ignorant, you haven't read in the Bible the countless times the one another's are like one another, one another, one another. You're like, I'm just too busy, man. The kids' softball games and this and ballet and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Really? I mean, that's what you're gonna say? You're gonna say, you know, I was too busy. I was too busy to be in community. And Jesus Christ had community. He had 12 guys that he, B-list actors that he hung around. 
spent time with, poured into them, laughed with, loved with. That's what he did life with. And you're going to say, you know what, I was too busy. But he's pretty busy. Being the son of God, performing miracles, preaching to 15,000 people, saving your soul. He was pretty busy. And so my challenge right now, I know COVID, you're in different places, but as it decreases, man, get back into community. If you're part of Biltmore Church, you live in Western North Carolina, that primarily starts with with connect groups. You're like, you know, I hadn't found one. Then start one. All right, start one. Don't be the Impala sitting out there. Get in the herd and figure out, all right, God, I want to be all that you want me to be. I need that for my marriage. I need that for my morals. I need that for my family. I need that for my kids. And so... uh, just in the comment section, if you're watching online, and again, I'll say this, Brevard, and I know West Asheville, you guys are about to kick off the small groups again, but this is the time to re-up and say, you know what, I'm going to be in small groups. And I say, Brevard, it just did me so, to see all those connect group teachers that had already been recruited and trained and motivated and excited, I was like, I cannot wait to see what God does through community. So why don't you bow your heads, heads bowed now, it's closed for just a second. If you, uh, if you don't have any community, if you'd please let us know, the easiest way you're like, this doesn't sound very spiritual, texting a number. It could be actually the most spiritual decision you make all year. As we come out of this thing, as we emerge from this little by little, just texting the word connect to 28282. Somebody will get back with you, try to help you figure out, how do I get some people around me, challenge me, encourage me, help me be who God wants me to be. So, all right, I'm going to pray for us. And... Um, and um, then we'll be done. Father, thanks for, uh, thanks for the people you put around us. Thank you for the resource, the amazing resource of community. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to repent of the uh, arrogance that we don't need some people, and to uh, take a step and say, you know what? I'm as this thing as this thing dies down. Some I want us to get into community. I'm a parent. I want to get my kid into community. I want to get into community. We need it. I need it. For the glory of God, we need it. Got to pray for those that just still knocking on the door, the Christian faith, not even sure exactly how that's going to work. Got to pray they'd say that Jesus suffered for them. Jesus suffered in their place. And that they would say yes to Jesus today. You know what? Today is the day I cross the line and I say, yes, Jesus, save me. And pray it in his name.